So just because I did that stunt, Dean's looking at me and I was like, I'm not going to have him do that again. So hello, welcome, good morning to Calvary Chapel Lighthouse. If you have a Bible, please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. And as you're turning there, um, I'm going to tell you kind of a little story. Um, in Isaiah 52, there's a poem. There's a poem that's being told in this particular section. And uh, basically what's happening is Israel has been decimated. Babylon has come in. They've destroyed Israel. They've come in three waves. They would come and they would take the Israelites and then send them back to Babylon. They'd come back, take more people, and then leave. And then come back a third time. And then at that point, Israel is completely decimated. So here we are in Isaiah 52, and we get this picture of what's happening. We get a picture of hopelessness. We get a picture of, this is terrible. How can this possibly be? And then we have the, the watchman on the wall. And as he's watching, and you have the fires going, the smoke, everything is decimated. We see this one guy, this one guy kind of running, running towards the broken aspect of the city. And all he's shouting is, good news, good news. And this is where I'm going to pick up. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Question. Why are the feet beautiful? Why are the feet beautiful? How many of you can confidently say, well, my feet are beautiful. I actually have like hobbit feet, so it's kind of like, you know, rough shoving them into these like, like thin shoes. And my little girl, she's cute, because uh, sometimes Sarah and uh, her will do their nails, and she'll come over to me, she's like, Daddy, look at my feet, right? And she's like, let me see your feet. And in those moments, I'm like, you know how you don't want to lie to your, parent, your children? In those moments, I'm tempted to lie like, I don't have feet, you know? <laughs> So are they beautiful because they're little girl feet? Are they beautiful because they've got little bits of nail polish on them? No. Because the reality is, these feet probably weren't beautiful. At the time, they would have had sandals. They would have been running. They would have been sweaty, probably bruised and blistered and got dirt and is muddy and gross. I apologize because immediately after this, we're going to eat. But again, I'm trying to paint a picture of the fact that these feet are ugly and bad. So again, the question then becomes, well, why? Why are they beautiful? It's not the feet that are physically beautiful. It's the message that the feet bring in a situation when times are hard. And what is that message? Your God reigns. Your God reigns. In a time of hopelessness. In a time of distress. That's oftentimes what you want, right? Is I need good news. I need something to hope in. I need something to propel me forward when life is just really hard and difficult. When everything that I know, my city, my home. Now again, think about the Jew at the time. Israel was their life. Israel was the city where God met man. And it's completely destroyed. But there's good news. Your God reigns. 
even though Jerusalem has been destroyed, Israel's God is still king. He himself is going to return. He is going to take back the city. He is going to take up his throne and bring peace when all else seems hopeless. Christmas time is a wonderful time for good news, right? My mom is addicted to Hallmark Channel. And I asked her one time, Mom, why do you like Hallmark? And she's always like, well, it's always one of those stories where it's a feel-good story. You have the, 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 the craziest, horrible situation, and something good always happens. And it's always around Christmas time, right? <laughs> Sometimes we'll watch things to hide the fact that life actually is hard. Especially around Christmas time. I want good news for Christmas this year. We sing the song, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. But there are some of you that are literally saying, all I want for Christmas is my parents to be saved. My children to be saved. My family to be back in unity. My children who are sick. The fact that I don't have a job. I don't have money to buy my children presents this year. There are legitimate things that are hard and difficult. So in a situation like now, what is good news? What is good news around Christmas? A few weeks ago, we started our Christmas Advent series. Pastor Dean took us through the prophet's candle. We looked at hope. He went through the Emmanuel prophecies in Isaiah 7, uh, 14, and 9 through 6 and 7. And then last week, we saw Pastor John give us the Bethlehem candle. The focus was on faith. We saw Mary. And we saw the Christ being announced to Mary and how she visits Elizabeth in this time. And then we take on, we have three candles here. We now light the fourth one. The shepherd's candle. We talk about joy this morning. My message title this morning is Good News for Bad Times. Good News for Bad Times. And we're going to be looking at three points this morning. We're going to be looking at the distress of good news, verses 18 through 19. The reassurance of joy, verses 20 through 23. And the joy of obedience. If you've turned your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, let's read 18 through 25 right now. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about the things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Do not be afraid. Oh, in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Please, let's go to the Lord in some prayer right now. Hallelujah, Lord. We say hallelujah, God, because your name is worthy to be praised. 
Lord, the announcement of a baby is good news. The announcement of a marriage is good news. But more importantly, Lord, I pray for the person sitting in the audience this morning, listening to this message, Lord, someone who doesn't have hope, someone who needs good news, Lord. May they find it in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray all these things. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right. So my first point, the distress of good news. The distress of good news. What does distress mean? No? Okay. I didn't actually write it down, so I was hoping you guys would say something. The dis usually distress is generally like a difficult situation. Like, oh no. Like, um, like this morning was definitely distressed. I see everyone kind of running around as they're like, oh no, we got to get the kids over here. We got to have this over there. We got to bring all the stuff back here. And then we got to do uh, worship. And then Anthony's going to talk forever and be very loud and probably turn everyone away. So it's a distressful, difficult situation that we find ourselves in, right? Again, Dean's looking at me like, I'm not asking him again to come back up here. <laughs> but when it comes to good news, how in the world can we have distress in good news? Let's look at verse 18. But before we get to there, very little is said about Mary in the book of Matthew. Luke actually focuses primarily on Mary and the birth of Jesus and the, the, the angel visiting her. But here in, uh, in, in Luke, and, but here in Matthew, we get the perspective from Joseph. So the story we're reading about today is from Joseph's perspective. And it says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, there they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Okay, a few things that I want to point out. Two phrases specifically in this particular context. Mary was betrothed to Joseph, okay? And then the next part is, she was found with child. Two very specific things, two very different things, especially when it comes to the fact of good news. How many of you were excited when you got married? Ladies, it's okay for you to raise your hands. Husbands were probably like, yeah, and then you look over the wife and like, hey. Maybe then, but not so much now, right? More now. In our culture, when a person is engaged to be married, it implies a future marriage. But at the same time, you need to understand what it would have been like in the Hebrew, how a Jewish man, how a Jewish woman would have gone about their engagement. Now we just kind of switch over our Facebook profile. Um, single, it's complicated, engaged, in a relationship, right? So it isn't necessarily that. What would have actually taken place is there's three things that would have happened back in the Jewish times. There would have been an engagement. There would have been a betrothal. And then there would have been married, a marriage. An engagement is generally by arrangement. This is where the parents would say, that one and that one. And then at a certain time, they're going to come together and they're going to be married. Hooray! And then there's the betrothal which is generally determined by time. A couple agreed or disagreed about, uh, um, uh, about the engagement. They agreed, when they agreed, the betrothal was generally the strength of an actual marriage. It was a contract, a covenant, and it was binding and only, only can be broken by uh, a, a certificate of divorce. The betrothal generally usually lasted a year. And throughout scripture, we see this picture of the husband going and to prepare a house, right? And so at this time that's betrothed, we see this clearly in the text. Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're technically married, but they're not actually married. 
the marriage actually takes place when the consummation of the couple takes place. There are kids in the room, ask Pastor Dean when you're done with this. <laughs> I'm kidding, ask your parents. But anyway, it is the literal physical oneness of a father and, or uh, of a husband and a wife. That is what binds the oneness of the parents. And again, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it's interesting to note, and I say this because marriage was a big deal back then. It was a means to, be, to celebrate, to be excited about. Even today, in certain pockets, marriage is still exciting. But it isn't exciting for the right reasons. It's exciting because the dress I get to wear, the venue I get to go to. It's less and less about what it actually means is that physical representation, that oneness, the coming together between a man and a woman, and more and more about a person, how they look, what satisfaction they can get with everyone looking at them. But again, it isn't just the marriage that's exciting. There's another aspect to be exciting. She was found with child. Now this is distressing news. Why? They're not technically married yet. They are betrothed. They're not physically married yet. Marriage was a big deal. But again, you know, what happens with this is Mary's integrity is now called into question. That's how we would think about it, right? But you've got to think about it in the terms of when this was happening. Mary, women back then were technically property. Who cares how this looks and reflects on Mary? What matters most is how this reflects and looks on Joseph, right? And that's the reality. That's the reality of the situation. And that's why we pick up with Joseph. And what does he do with this? Again, um, don't we do all that? Don't we make situations about ourselves? We don't think about the other people involved. We look at it and say, how does this affect me? How am I going to look in this situation? My children were up here at the play. How is he going to deliver his lines? It better be good because I want people to say, wow, your kid is really good. Because <laughs> it reflects on me, right? We do the same thing. We want our children to succeed, not because we want them to succeed, because we want it to look good on our part. You want your church to be successful, not because you want Jesus to be honored, but because you want to leave this place and say, look at how successful my church is, right? This is an epidemic that is sweeping through all the churches. It isn't just here. And praise the Lord, actually, it isn't here, really. You guys are a good core group of people that come not because of entertainment. You come because you want to be fed the word. And praise God for that. My wife and I talk very heavily about how we love coming here to hear the word being taught. Amen. But again, we rush to conclusions and make it about our feelings and our comfort. But I like what Andrew Murray said. Because even then, even in our difficult situations, even though we make it about ourselves, whether we're right, whether we're wrong, that's beside the point. Andrew Murray says this in regards to difficult situations. He says, first, he brought, uh, uh, having a perspective, I should say. He says, first, he, God, brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place. In that fact, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. Then he will make the trial a blessing. 
teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when he knows. Let me say it right here. Number one, generally when you find yourself in a situation, a difficult situation, a distressing situation, it is by, number one, God's appointment. Number two, in his keeping. Number three, under his training. And number four, for his time, not your time. But how many of you are willing to say, you know what, I'm gonna stop for a second and actually ask God, like, God, what are you trying to teach me in this situation? I would be lying to you if I said, I do that all the time. No, I, I flip out, I freak out. <laughs> but again, look at verse 19. Even though sometimes a bad situation happens, we see Joseph's character. Verse 19 tells us, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Again, the text describes Joseph as a just man. What does it mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to be just? Does anyone know? Oh, I know. I know. Be perfect. In the situation that this was happening, the law, the Ten Commandments, right? Oh, I know. Being just means following the rules, doing everything in your power to do that so that you appear to be good and all those other things, right? Well, stop and think about it for a second. Joseph isn't a just man because he just keeps the law. Obeying the law would mean exposing Mary to the authorities. Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24 tells us how the law required a betrothed virgin who committed adultery was to be stoned to death. They would make it a public spectacle. They would put her in the center of the town and people would just lunge rocks at her till it ultimately killed her. So stop and think for a second. The text doesn't tell us that Joseph's a just man because he turns her in. Why is he a just man? He's just because he's reflecting the law. Not the law. He's reflecting the Lord. Being a good Christian what does that mean? Oh, I know. Coming to church on Sunday, reading your Bible all the time, having one of those cool bumper stickers on the back of your car. Raising your hands when you worship. Having a child in the Christmas play, right? We can come up with all these particular situations that, like, I am a good person because of these particular things. No. What you do doesn't define who you are. Jesus Christ in you defines who you are. Again, look at what Joseph does. Not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. Joseph is just because he's exercising God's grace and mercy. He'd rather, listen, he'd rather see her alive than put to death. Even though this may look badly on him, this may look badly on her for the rest of her life, he cares about the ultimate big picture aspect. He wants to see her live. How do you reflect Jesus? Galatians 2.20 tells us this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life that I now live, I'll be 
completely honest with you, I wasn't a perfect person. I grew up in the church, but I did dumb stuff. I went on a completely different direction. But now that I'm saved, now that I've given my life over to the Lord, there are still aspects where those things come into play. But it isn't like me trying to be good. What I'm trying to do is exercise grace and mercy because Jesus himself came down and was that grace and mercy on my behalf. Do you reflect Jesus? How do you reflect Jesus? Do you reflect life? Or do you reflect condemnation? Are you so busy looking at people and wanting to point, point to them and say, that person's going to hell, that person's going to hell? Or do you look at them and say, you know what? That person needs to be saved. And I'm willing, perfectly willing to go out of my comfort zone, share, them the, share with them a love that they, uh, and a hope that they can have. And maybe around Christmas time, that's exactly what they need. You can be joyful. You can be happy. Happiness depends on what's happening around, right? But you can have joy in the Lord. Making a decision about Christ and his claims will often put you at odds with the popular culture's views of science, culture, and philosophy, right? Some of you are probably like, I deal with that at work all the time. I, I can't have my calendar with Bible verses on there anymore. I can't say Merry Christmas to people. Instead, I have to say Happy Holidays. You know what's really funny about that? It actually means um, Happy Holy Days. So in that respect, I don't want them to know that because I can still say Happy Holidays and be like, hey, Happy Holy Days, right? But it's not about that. I'm not trying to stir the pot or anything, right? But again, I like what V. Raymond Edmonds said. V. Raymond Edmond is a cool old dead guy. I dig on cool old dead guys. But he has this uh, saying. He said, never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. I'm going to say that one more time. Never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. Meaning, don't forget the promises. Don't forget the calling. Don't forget your identity is not in what you do but Jesus Christ in you. And we stand upon this right here as our foundation as we move forward. My next point, the reassurance of joy. The reassurance of joy. Wow, Anthony, that was kind of a bummer first point. How can you bring us up after that? Look at verse 20. It says this. But while he thought about the things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you to, to you, marry your wife, for which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Okay, ladies who are married, how many of you have ever asked your husband, what you thinking? Okay, ladies, how many of you are kind of shocked and surprised when they say, nothing? nothing. Right? <laughs> The first few years of my marriage, this was like a conundrum to my wife. How could you not be thinking of anything? I'm like, I don't know. I, I just am not. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because when it says, while he thought. This particular Greek word is a very interesting Greek word because it's only found three times in the Bible. It's uh, the Greek word, uh, which is the, uh, which is found here. And it's found in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, and it says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you do 
Why do you think evil in your hearts? And again, in Acts chapter 10, verse 19, while Peter thought about, thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. So we have the context of Jesus is performing miracles, and people are like, oh, I don't like what Jesus is doing. And Jesus says, Dude, I can hear what you're thinking. And then the other one is, Peter is literally thinking about, like, I just had this vision. I have to go eat with the Gentiles. This is ridiculous. And the point that I'm getting at with this, and Joseph's doing the same thing, he is actually thinking and weighing his options carefully. I know that I love this woman. I know that this person means a lot to me. I am willing to stop and actually think and weigh the options out. Ladies, here's an example of a man thinking. <laughs> Guys, you have a reason now. You are able to think. <laughs> but it isn't just thinking. I'll ask, a, I'll ask a question and I'll pose a challenge. Do you include the Lord? What do you mean? In your thoughts, in your decision making, how you move forward. Do you include him? I get a picture of Joseph including God. God, what do I do in this situation? He's thinking about it. He's weighing these options out. Some of us, I'm guilty of it. I've made a rash decision, and I've had to live with that. I've made dumb decisions, and I've had to live with that. But then there are some times that I'll make a careful decision. And people may look at you as you're doing the same thing and call you crazy. How dare you do that? Guess what? Me and our team literally moved from New Mexico all the way over here to New Hampshire. People literally are like, why are you going there? Good question. Because it's great here. Go pass. Don't quote me on that, Terry. Anyway. <laughs> all I'm simply saying is that sometimes when you do what the Lord asks you to do, you weigh it out confidently. Include the Lord. Don't make a decision because it makes you look good. Don't make a decision because of how it'll affect you. Because realistically, on paper, it doesn't make sense. Why would I bring my family here? <laughs> After I made a big move from Wyoming to New Mexico, it doesn't make sense. Anthony, aren't you thinking about your wife and what she thinks and needs? Anthony, aren't you thinking about your children and what they think and need? And all I can simply say is, but I feel this is from God. I feel this is exactly what I need to do. How many of you have that right now? How many of you are actually having that conversation with God right now? I am weighing certain big and heavy things. The pastor today said, maybe I should include God. Look at verses 21 through 23. It says this. And again, another thing that I want to point out is, even though he's actually thinking about this, guess what happens? An angel shows up and actually like is listening. Well, God's listening and sends the angel, right? Dude, I've been thinking about what you're saying. I've been hearing what you're saying. And this is the reassurance you need right now. And the angel says this in verse 21. And, while, uh, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Three things that I want to point out. I want to point out a name, I want to point out a mission, and I want to point out a title. The name, his name is Jesus. The Hebrew word for Jesus is Yeshua. 
It means Jehovah is salvation. The central meaning is the deliverance from a terrible disaster that leads to perishing. Jesus began his ministry by being hungry, yet he is the bread of life. Jesus ended his earthly ministry by being thirsty, yet he is the living water. Jesus was weary, yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is the king. Jesus was accused of having a demon, yet he cast out demons. Jesus wept, yet he wipes away our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. Jesus died, yet by his death, he destroyed the power of death. Amen? That is his name. What's his mission? Look at what it says. He will save people. He will save people from their sins. The mission of Jesus is to save people from their sins so that they can join the saved community, those that have put their faith and trust in, in Jesus. The church, not just any old church, not just a building, not just what we have here, but the church as a whole. The real enemy, ladies and gentlemen, is not that successful down the successful church down the street or um, your political party, whatever it may be. The real enemy is sin. The real issue with people is sin. Man has tried to find purpose in materialism, in pride, in self-centeredness, in laziness, in anger, bitterness, sexual lust, envy, gluttony, and lying. And what does it do? What does it produce? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What is sin? Man calls it an accident, but God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a defect. God calls it a disease. Man calls it an error. God calls it amenity. Man calls it a liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it weakness. God calls it willful. How will Jesus save the people from their sins? How will he do it? First of all, people need to understand that they need to be saved in the first place. How many of you have ever found yourself in a burning building? Thank goodness, right? It isn't oftentimes that you're in a situation like that that you're like, oh my goodness, I need to be saved. There's smoke and fire everywhere. But there are certain situations that there is no smoke. There is no fire. But yet the ground itself below, could, there's something that you couldn't see and that building itself could collapse in. And you wouldn't even know it, right? There are those that, real, that need a fire to realize that they need to be saved. And yet there are some that are completely lost to the idea that they need to be saved. Does not, does not that sound like the world? Does, not sound, does not that what it sounds like when you turn on the TV and you see people completely lost in their self-centeredness? And another question that I would ask you, does that bother you? Or are you content knowing full well there are people dying and going to hell? How will Jesus save people from their sin? He did what man could not do. He paid the price. He took on God's wrath. He made it possible for us to be reconciled back to God. Mary and Joseph don't know it. That their little baby boy will grow. He will be a man. He will live only to die. He will give himself 
upon the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus is depicted as his enthronement, as king of the Jews. He receives a crown. He receives a robe. He is exalted and lifted up, but not upon a throne, but on a cross. They put nails in his hands. They will put nails in his feet. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. The cross is in a tragedy. It's good news. Because in that act, Jesus died. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He would rise again. Ladies and gentlemen, that's good news. That's a reassurance of joy in that we've been given a name, we've been given a mission, and now we've been given a title, Emmanuel. This title of Jesus refers to both his deity, God with us, and his identification and nearness to man, God with us. You look at all the major religions. It, they're not personal gods. Jesus himself made himself a man and took on our sin. He lived the way that we lived. He went through all the temptations that we went through. God with us. Remember, again, up until this point, God is silent. Malachi is the last thing that we hear of God. And it isn't until John the Baptist that we hear from God. Even now, as the angel is presenting these reassurances of joy, God isn't speaking. But what the angel is doing is reminding them that we've heard, we know, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. God came down to be with us. The reassurance of joy comes from the person of Jesus Christ. And finally, my last point, the joy of obedience. The joy of obedience. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. What does this mean? Everything that he wrestled with. Everything that he was thinking about. Everything that he was including God. Asking questions. He wasn't questioning God. He was asking questions to God. And God reaffirms it and reminds him, this baby, this distress, this horrible situation, according to the you know, pop culture at that time, right? According to this situation, this person is going to come. This is Jesus. And instead of saying, you know what, should I marry Mary? Now he's saying, I need to marry Mary. Say that three times fast. <laughs> there are certain things that I say that's not in my notes, and then after saying it, I'm like, hmm, I probably could have said that better. But the point that I'm getting at is this. He's being obedient. He's being obedient to the call that God has called him to. What does God call us to do? There's a wonderful book by uh, Oz Guinness. It's called The Call. His argument in the book isn't necessarily what we're called to. The reality is, is we're all called. We're all called. <coughs> to what? Some of you may be called to a pulpit. Some of you may be called to be a husband, a wife. Some of you are called to be a father. Uh, all the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Clearly, I'm not called to this. 
but some of you are called to certain things at your job to reflect Jesus. Again, it's not a question whether you are called. Every single one of us are called. What we are called from and called to. We are called from labor to rest, according to Matthew eleven twenty eight. We are called from death to life, according to 1 John three fourteen. We are called from bondage to liberty, according to Galatians five thirteen. We are called out of darkness into light, 1 Peter two nine. We are called from bondage to peace, First Corinthians seven fifteen. We are called to fellowship of His Son, First Corinthians one nine. But what happens? What happens when we obey this calling? We are made sons of God, John 1.12. We are made children of God, Galatians 3.26. We are made the servants of God, Matthew 25.21. We are made God's saints, Colossians 1.1. We are made God's witnesses, 1 Thessalonians 2.10. We are made workers together with God, 2 Corinthians 6.1. We are called a high calling, Philippians 3.14. We are called to a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9. And we are called to a heavenly calling, Hebrews 3.1. It sounds heavy. It sounds hard. But I guarantee you, there's joy in obedience. Not to man. Not to me. Not to your political party. Not to your job. There's joy in obedience to Jesus Christ himself. There's joy in obeying what this book has to say. Joy is the byproduct of <coughs> obedience. And maybe some of you have been wrestling right now with God. God, what do I do? Where am I to go? I think the answer is right in front of you. But are you willing? to swallow your pride and say, okay, God. We're called to know God and to make him known. For the mom, that's to your children at your house. To your husband, that's to your wife and your family at home. To some of us, it's to this pulpit. To a lot of you, it's the job that God has called you to. Be obedient and you will have joy. Will it be hard Will there be distress in the good news that God has given you right now? Absolutely. But as we inch closer and closer to Christmas, this is good news. That even though it may be dark and difficult, our God reigns. Our Lord Jesus came and was born. He lived. He died. He rose again. And he's coming back. There's the distress of good news. There's the reassurance of joy in Jesus Christ. And there's the joy of obedience when we obey God. And as Dean comes up, and as I close in prayer, as the worship team comes up, I'm going to close in prayer. And I would ask you, I would challenge you to prepare your hearts right now as we go and celebrate communion, as we break the bread, as we take the cup. Ladies and gentlemen, you can have joy today. You can have hope. Not in anything I've said, but what Jesus, is, what Jesus has already told you. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Lord. We say hallelujah, God, because your name is worthy to be praised. And Lord, forgive me for the times that I distress over the dumbest of things. Thank you, Lord, 
that you've come and that you're coming back. Thank you, Lord, that we have an opportunity to worship you, to continue to worship you. And so, Lord, I pray for that person that's struggling. May they find their hope in you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. It's in your name.